chapter. We've been talking about Revelation 20 and the millennial kingdom of Christ. And this brings us into chapter 21. I won't be reading the entire text, but I'll read down to um, chapter 21. I mean, verse 21. Chapter 21 to verse 21. How's that? Okay. Chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, 
the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Oh, dear Lord, what an incredible description. I can't even believe that one day I will see this in reality as John did. And God, I I lift this time before you today that as we gather to hear from you, that you would speak through your servant Paul. And that you would use this time to open our eyes to not just the things of you here in this world, but the things of you in the future that we can look forward to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that vision, the same vision that inspired you to live a perfect life. May it inspire us, Lord. So use this time for your glory. And use your servant Paul and spend him for our benefit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we have arrived at the new heavens and the new earth. Remember, this series is about the blessed afterlife. If you want to study the book of Revelation, you can do so on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. We've just started uh, a study on the whole book of Revelation this morning. We just did an introductory uh, thing this morning, and we're going to do more introduction next week. That's so that we can kind of clear away a few things and that also we can um, maybe uh, clear away a few fears that people have when they start reading the book of Revelation. Uh, There are weird things in the book, aren't there? And uh, people can get kind of put off by the visions of the creatures and um, all the things that seem to be happening there, and it gets a little bit confusing. But if you want to come along and learn more about the book of Revelation, then Sunday school at 9 o'clock. And it would be lovely to have you. So we have already looked at the fact that if a person, a Christian, dies today, they go to heaven. Heaven's a real place, and it's not a place that is to be equated with clouds and harps, and that's all. We get the wrong idea about heaven when we think of it in those terms. There's not a great deal said about it in the Bible, which means that it's open to all kinds of speculation. And there are many people who are eager to fulfill that speculation, to write books for us, claiming that they've been there, spoken to Jesus, as even one lady I believe recently, who uh, said Jesus wanted to marry her, who went there. Uh, It gets pretty weird. Uh, I give absolutely no um, 
no importance to those books at all. And um, if, for example, Paul wasn't allowed to say anything about what he saw and heard, why on earth should a 21st century author think that uh, they can? John, in the book of Revelation, gives us the most information that we have on heaven, and it's not as much as we would like. It's certainly not as much as I would like. We just know it's a wonderful place. We just know it's a place of peace and joy. It's the dwelling place of God. We know that no sin is allowed there. We know also that no death is allowed there because it is the place of of, uh, God's dwelling place. But it is not the permanent dwelling place of the saints. This is because Jesus, who died in this world, is coming back to this world to reign upon it. And where Jesus is, that's where his saints will be. And so after the return of Jesus Christ, and hopefully that is soon, Jesus will reign according to Revelation chapter 20 for 1,000 years upon the earth. That 1,000-year reign of Christ is upon this earth, not the new heavens and new earth, but this earth. And what that means is that Jesus, the one who uh, stilled the wind and the waves with just a word, the one who raised people from the dead, who restored uh, life to dead limbs, who gave speech and hearing to those who were impaired that way, the one who spoke those words of life in the world just for a short time 2,000 years ago, that his words will pervade the whole of this world because he no longer will speak as a lowly Galilean prophet, but he speaks as the king of the earth. He speaks from the place of power in Jerusalem where he belongs. And when his words go out, the earth will be restored. It will be changed. It will be transformed. Satan, for his part, is going to be imprisoned. He's going to be put into the bottomless pit. And so... We're not going to be bothered by him. He's no longer going to be the prince of the power of the air. He's no longer going to be the quote-unquote God of this age. Just imagine that. Just imagine a world where Satan and his influence do not are not in, uh, an issue. And we hardly can, by the way. It's difficult to imagine that because Satan and his power impinges upon everything. Perhaps a lot more powerfully than we like to think. So Jesus will reign for a thousand years upon this earth, this cursed earth. And in doing that, He shows that he's not giving up on the original creation of God, but he's going to make something of it to the glory of God. 
It's not just a throwaway, this world. It is something that will, again, glorify its creator. But it is cursed. And so if you look at Revelation chapter 22, which speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, look at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. When is the curse lifted? In the new heavens and the new earth. That means that this earth and this heavens are cursed. Well, surely the best thing to do with something that's cursed is just to wrap it up and destroy it and start all over again. And don't bother with it. But that is not what Jesus does, because that's not what God does. God doesn't give up on stuff, especially things that he's created. He's going to give it meaning. He's going to make sure that it glorifies him. And it will glorify him by, at the end of that thousand years, Jesus, whose power restrains the curse... And brings peace, you might think of it this way, enforces peace upon this earth for that thousand years. At the end of it, he destroys Satan. Finally, the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. That's when that is fulfilled at the end of that thousand years. What then? Well, the earth, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 and following, is delivered up again to God. So the Son who saves and restores the earth delivers it up as a job well done. Everyone who's ever going to be saved will be saved by that time. And then we see the dissolution of the present heavens and earth. And then behold, a new heavens and a new earth. And that's where we are in today's sermon. That's where we are. Uh, We'll say more about it next week. You can see from the outline that I've given you that even though I had Steve read a great deal of the text in Revelation 21, that we actually are only going to do a few verses. But we're going to make some considerations Uh, about what it says further on as well. Chapter 21 and verse 1 introduces this new era. This era is an eternal era. Now that in itself is very hard for us to comprehend. Can uh, Can you think about it in those terms? What What does it mean to say that something is everlasting or eternal. It means that something never wears out. It means that it doesn't get old. Because if it got old, obviously, it would get older and older and older and older, and uh, sooner or later it would uh, just completely wear out. But nothing wears out in the eternal realm. Therefore, the idea of aging doesn't make any sense. Because the idea of death 
is omitted. Right now, put yourself into that scenario. All you know, all I know, is aging and death. <laughs> and so you can see that just by a consideration of, uh, of the idea of eternity, an eternal dwelling place, this transformation will be, well, just incredibly uh, earth-shattering as far as our comprehension of things, as far as our understanding of the world is concerned, as far as our understanding of ourselves and our significance is, is concerned, and as far as our understanding of God is concerned. Because then as eternal beings, given that eternal life on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross by God, we shall understand God's eternity much more. We will understand why we were created much more. We will understand why eternity and dwelling in eternity is not some kind of uh, inexplicable thing that terrifies us, because when I think about it sometimes, I do get a little scared. Of what's it, what does it mean to live forever and ever and ever and ever? But something that we were created to enjoy and to be. Can you ever imagine living for a thousand years? Some of the uh, people in uh, the earlier chapters of Genesis nearly lived for a thousand years. You say you don't believe that, do you? You don't believe it? Yes, of course I do. The Bible says it. But can you imagine living for a thousand years? I mean, we don't even make it hardly to a hundred years, most of us. No, you can't imagine that. What about a million years? What about a billion years? Then how on earth can we understand everlasting life? That's what is somewhat terrifying. And it's the, the terror or the, the, um, the enormity of it, which is so overpowering when you really think about it, is only assuaged by the idea of it being the kingdom of love, the kingdom of peace and the kingdom that we were made and saved to dwell in. So there's going to have to be a big transformation in our thinking, in our comprehension of what we're here for. And you can be quite sure that in eternity we will not be sitting around on clouds learning the, ne the, the latest harp um, <clears throat> composition that we will be doing things for God for each other which will fit exactly why we were created in the first place so think about this new heavens new earth what does it mean to speak about a new heavens and new earth well obviously new earth we can understand that 
Whether it's the same size as this one, who knows? We're not told anything about this. New heavens, that means new stars. A new, quote-unquote, universe. A new cosmos. What does that mean as far as our understanding of the cosmos is, is concerned? It's an interesting question to ask because remember that according to what Steve read, the new Jerusalem, which is in heaven, comes down from heaven to the new earth. And earth becomes the center of all things. Now, by the way, I believe the earth is the center of God's plan right now. But in a special way, heaven comes to earth. God comes to earth to dwell here or in the new earth. God with man because he wants to dwell with man on the, in the dwelling place, in the creation that he's made for us. He wants that closeness, that fellowship, that life for you. Now, things are going to have to change quite a lot as far as our comprehension of God is concerned. Because even though I know God is my Father, even though I know that He has saved me, and therefore He has loved me, and therefore everything that I have is because of His grace and His sacrifice and the sacrifice of His own Son, the idea of the enormity of God, the majesty of God, the knowledge of God is too much for me to really comprehend in this, with this mind and this body. God wanting to dwell here, wanting to uh, interact with our lives for eternity, wanting to be the center, the focal point of our existence, And in doing so, making our existence, making our lives so much more than they are now. That's what's involved in this idea of new heavens and new earth. It's all we know is this. We know these buildings, we know this technology, we know uh, these flowers, these things. And there is so much here that we appreciate and we thank God for. But what about the new heavens? What about the new earth? Is it just going to be a republication, or just a duplication of what we have now? We do not know. But as it's eternal... Can I guess, can I speculate that it's going to be so much more wonderful? So much more, actually, that these minds, these feelings, these bodies, they're not up to it. They're not up to the comprehension The senses that God has given to us work pretty well here. 
but they're not enough for the new heavens and the new earth. They're not enough for that divine human interaction that is to come. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's this. That's where we are now. It's going to go. It's going to be replaced because it has to be replaced so that the eternity is not blighted by the curse. Do you see that? Otherwise, there wouldn't be any reason for God to recreate things. I mean, just fix things a little bit. But the curse, you see, because God cursed the earth, and a curse from God is not something that you just remove like you remove a Band-Aid. It has sunk deep into the tissue of what this world is. And so it has to be redone, recreated. It has to be uh, heavens and an earth that is fitted for perfection and eternity. A cursed earth doesn't do that. Now, I believe that in the millennium, the power of Christ and the presence of Christ as the Prince of Peace will do away with many diseases, will do away with many of the problems of the fall and the uh, oppressions of the curse will be kept down by his presence. But it won't be, can I use this word, innate to the creation itself. It will be something that is put on a creation that's trying to groan, trying to fight back, as it were, because it's cursed. So that's got to go. So that the new heavens and the new earth can take its place. Yes, the first heaven, the first earth have passed away, which must mean there's a second heaven and a second earth to take its place. It says here there's no more sea, and I'm not really sure what that means. I, obviously, there are different commentators say different things. I think that it perhaps has a connotation of the waters at the beginning of creation. But passing on from that, John wants you to know that he saw the holy city, verse 2, called New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That doesn't mean it's wearing a dress. But it does mean that it has been spectacularly beautified. To be on earth and, or, or to be uh, a witness to the descent of the new Jerusalem 
coming out of heaven to earth. Can you imagine being a spectator to that? Because you will be. You're going to see this amazing city, huge as it is. A thousand miles, 1250 miles square, according to the dimensions that are given here. You say, well, I don't believe that. I need to spiritualize that. I need to do something with that because my mind can't get around it. It's okay. New heavens, new earth, new mind. Just believe what God says. And you'll see this thing descending. And the significance of this descent of this city coming out of heaven is the descent of God to the dwelling place of man. No longer in eternity will heaven be the focal point of where God's presence is. But this earth, you're the one to come. Notice it says it's coming down out of heaven from God. This is the great and final gift, as it were. This is the culmination of all of the wondrous changes that God will bring about in the new creation. This is the capstone, as it were. And we'll all understand the significance of it. We'll all be waiting for it with great anticipation. And we'll rejoice as we see the new Jerusalem descending to earth because we'll understand what this means. This is the beginning of eternity. This is the beginning of who we are meant to be. Now, as we'll see, not in this sermon, but in another sermon, in another sermon, the earth is not just New Jerusalem. There are nations, there are kings, there are uh, kingdoms that are upon earth as well as New Jerusalem. And for that reason, I believe that the reason that the, we have this description of a, a bride adorned for her husband is that the church will dwell in New Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, you may not know this, although if you are familiar with this kind of language in the rest of the Bible, they shall be my people, I shall be their God. That's covenant language. It's covenant language. Now, the idea of covenant is very important. It was important, actually, to the founding fathers of this nation. 
It has to do with a solemn obligation that God enters into on behalf of those that he treasures and that he loves. A binding compact that he can't get out of and he doesn't want to get out of. After all, the blood of that covenant is the blood of his own son. This is where everything, the whole history of man, has been leading up to, where God can finally say, in paradise, in the new creation, I will be their God, they shall be my people. And then it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is a reflection of our salvation. This is an anticipation of what love looks like when it is poured out upon us. God wants to bring relief, perfect relief from our sufferings, from our pain, from our depression from our fears, from our sorrows. He wants to wipe them all away as we might wipe away a piece of dirt from a countertop that they are no more. The former things have gone. And this is where our imaginations have got to kick in, although they're not really sufficient for it. Just think about this. No more death. No more death. What does that mean? Apart from people that aren't going to die anymore. Well, it means that there'll be no birth. Because no one's going to die. It means there'll be, as I said, no more aging, no more growing old and growing weak. No more hospitalizations. It means that at this point in the storyline, even though we're given just a little bit of information about it right now, It means that all of those that um, will populate eternity will be present. No one will be added to them. Nobody will be taken away from them. The whole first stage, as it were, enormous as it is, of God's plan of salvation 
will be fulfilled, will be complete. And now this next stage, this second earth is ready to take over. Now, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know the creator of the heavens and the earth? Because if you don't, you don't know the creator of the new heavens and the new earth. And I want you to be a witness. I want you to be a participant in seeing the new Jerusalem come out of heaven. I want you to be able to enter it as its citizen. I want you to be able to experience this fellowship in eternity with God. I want I want to see your faces and the faces of the other saints when there is no more tears in their eyes. There's no more sorrow upon their faces. They have not been crying and they won't cry. And pain does not cross their brows anymore. And all of those things are behind you and me. This is the future. This is your future. But you can't grasp it, can you? You can grasp the past because you've lived through it. You can grasp the present because you're in it. You just have to be told about the future and then you have to grasp it by faith. You have to believe it because the one who promised is faithful and he will surely bring it to pass. He hasn't told us this so that we can have just pleasant dreams about what might happen. He's told us this because it's a certainty. It's where we're headed It's what we're made for. We and all of the saints, that great, wonderful, redeemed congregation of human beings, those that perhaps have only lived a very short span on this earth, those that have lived a long time but in much travail and difficulty. Those who have known and how few of us have not known pain and crying and sorrow and grief. Those who are the lambs redeemed. This truly is a description, although it's not a very good one, of the blessed afterlife. Isaac Watts, we sang one of his hymns. He says this in a book called The World to Come. Just a brief description. He speaks about sincerity 
and truth of soul with all the beauties of an upright heart and character are necessary to enter the blessed state. No envy, no wrath or malice, no revenge, nor any of the angry principles that dwell in our flesh and blood or that inflame and disturb the mind will be found in those regions of peace and love. No pride or ambition, no self-exaltation and vanity can dwell there. No sensual and intemperate creature, no covetous selfishness, no irregular passions, no narrowness of soul, no uncharitable and party spirit will ever be found in that country of diffusive love and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are contemplating things in your word, but things that are yet ahead of us is the great consummation for which you have saved us. And so first, Lord, I want to pray that if there is anyone here who is not yet saved because they have not trusted in Jesus' death on the cross for their sins, may your Holy Spirit convict them of their sins and show them the love of God that was displayed at Calvary. And I pray that they will believe that he died for them and that they would be saved, saved for eternity. For those saints who are struggling or going through difficulty at this time, I pray that they would be comforted at what lies ahead, at what you have wrought for them. I pray, Lord, that we would consider this and give back worship and praise to you for what you have done by grace, because you love us, because you pity us, and because you want that eternal relationship with us. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. How very encouraging it is to have a vision of the future and look forward to it. I I was reminded of the Father's prayer in in Mark 9 when uh, Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes, and and he responds, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that's an appropriate prayer for us when we're looking at these things and saying, you know, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Our benediction is going to come out of um, 1 Peter 4 and 5. Um, I want to start in uh, 1 Peter 4 where Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his gl- glory is revealed. What a great, great encouragement. And in chapter 5, the benedictions from verse 10. And the God of all peace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, 
will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Have an awesome week. God bless you all.